and welcome to Never Seen It. It's a podcast about movies we haven't seen yet. My name is Trent. I'm here with my wife, Betsy. Well, hello, Trent. We're in the middle of Hank's giving, Betsy. It is our actor series starring the one and only Tom Hanks. We are giving thanks and gratitude and all of the other synonyms that I'm not going to list here. Warm, fuzzy feelings. All that stuff. To the man himself, he is the man of the hour, Betsy. This is episode two of our Thanksgiving special, and we're in the 90s today. We're going to watch a movie for which Tom Hanks won his first Oscar, I yes, believe. This is his first one. Yeah, so we talked in our last episode in 1984's Splash. It was a comedy, and Tom Hanks had not yet graduated from his comedy roots into his more dramatic stuff. And in 1993, I believe this was his... I don't know if it was his first foray into this, but it was certainly his biggest role to date, I believe. Yeah, he kind of came out swinging. He was like, I spent all of the 80s making these goofy comedies, and yeah. there are a lot of them, yeah. and only a few kind of tiptoe into the waters of drama. Yeah. But he got to the 90s, he's getting pigeonholed as that guy from Sleepless in Seattle, that guy from Joe versus the Volcano, the yeah. rom-com guy, sure. the goofy comedy guy. Did he guy. do Turner and Hooch? He did Turner and Hooch. Fuck. So he made all of these movies, and then all of a sudden, 1993, fuck all of you, like, I'm making a drama. It's like, holy shit, this guy can act. And he didn't just make a drama, he made this drama, which is yes. a very poignant, relevant piece mm -hmm. for the time it was made. Let's just call it, it's a bummer. Now, okay, we haven't seen this movie. Neither of us have seen this movie. But we kind of know what it's about. The reason why we're covering it for our 90s section of this of this series is because we've seen most of the other 90s movies that Tom Hanks has made. For the most part. And the fact that neither of us has seen the movie for which he won his first Oscar yeah. seems like a major oversight on our part. Totally. But again, like I said, I know what this movie is about. I know you do too. But why don't you tell our listeners what you think you know about it at least. So yeah, early 90s, we are in the strongest throes of the AIDS epidemic. And this movie, he plays a gay man mm -hmm. who finds out he has AIDS and is fired from his job. And I do believe this is based on a true story. That I cannot say. I believe it is. Okay. But he gets fired from his job and he sues the company. Mm-hmm. Because it, he feels he was wrongfully terminated because this is a yep. time where people were still a little bit freewheeling about firing yeah. people for stuff like that. Right. And this movie came out in 93. I don't know like what year it actually took place. I assume this is maybe in the 80s. Maybe a little before. Based on when like the the height of the fear was. And I do believe he he this guy is a lawyer. And he is fired from this law firm, and he has a hard time finding representation to take his case for wrongful termination. That part I don't know. I do know Denzel is his lawyer. Yeah, Denzel is his lawyer here. And I don't know if Denzel also got nominated for this. I know they're kind of equal roles, or at least equal billing. And he already had an Oscar at this point, because Glory came out before Glory, this. Glory, right. He got it for Best Supporting. Yeah. So you're looking at a big picture with big stars at the front of it mm -hmm. on a topic that was really, really relevant to the time it was made. 
But yeah, for some reason, I've never watched it. Like, a part of me feels like it's the Apocalypse Now thing where I have seen a big chunk of this movie on TV or something because there are bits and pieces of it that as I sit here and think about it, I feel like, okay, I can picture this scene. I can picture that scene. And like, in context... This movie's been out for a very long time. Like, we were eight and nine years old when it came out. There's not really a lot of other opportunities for us to have watched it other than, hey, put it on on streaming one night. But this this is not a movie that you really want to sit down and watch unless it is for Oscar's consideration or maybe to study it. Unless it's a really beautiful well-acted film, which I can't speak to that because I haven't watched it. Exactly. So I can't really think of any, like, scenes from this movie. Like, it's going to be a lot of courtroom stuff. I fully fully expect. I would say more of it is going to be, or, like, at least the last half is the courtroom part. Right. And I also know that Tom Hanks goes through, like, a physical transformation. I know he gets sicker and sicker as the movie goes along. Yes. I don't know if he, he did the thing that he did for Castaway where he lost, like, a bunch of weight. But I imagine that if he was really going towards this dramatic uh, shift, that he probably did that. Possibly. And that would be part of the commitment to how he won an Oscar. Yeah. So, all right. I think that's where we're going to leave it for now. We're going to go and watch Philadelphia from 1993. We'll be right back. Betsy, it's only taken another 278 episodes, but we finally did another courtroom drama. It's been a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Our first episode ever, episode one, The Trial of the Chicago 7, was our very first episode. And yeah, it's taken this long to do another one. Betsy, that was Philadelphia. What did you think of that one? Yeah, as I said, this movie's sad. It's sad. It also makes me angry. It's also, there are times this movie feels like a little bit of a lecture, but if you put yourself in the context of 1993, America needed a fucking lecture. Yeah. And um, according to like the, the little bit of reading that we did, this was basically the first movie that Hollywood had produced about the AIDS crisis of any kind. And it was a major, major movie with huge Mm -hmm. stars and a huge director. Yeah. Well, what did you think of this one, Trent? I think I'm right there with you. It also gives me a little bit of, I don't know, you could say it's a sense of pride or it's a sense of relief. I mean, I am not a member of any of these communities, but I would say we have come a long way in our culture, not only to be more accepting of people who are not of your persuasion, but also having an understanding about HIV and AIDS, the disease itself. Because what they're focusing on at the very beginning of the movie is not just the just out-and-out fear. It is like people are taken aback. Like it's kind of like when people really didn't understand COVID and like, oh, geez, I don't want to be anywhere near you. I need to be, need to be six feet apart from you. And it's before we all had an understanding of 
the disease itself. But with AIDS, there was a very specific stigma that yeah. is demonstrated very well in this movie. It really is. And it's really sad. Like you said, it's a very sad movie. And there's a lot of different elements going on. Like you have the main character who is a gay man with AIDS mm -hmm. who they never go into specifically when and how this happened. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But the implication is he got it because he is gay. And then there's a woman who has AIDS yeah. who had a blood transfusion because, again, as it was new science and they were figuring out how it was transmitted, mm -hmm. people were still donating blood. They weren't testing the blood. They didn't even know to look at the blood. Sure. And she got it. And the way they treat her versus the way they treat him, yeah. there is a marked difference. Yeah, because clearly he was reckless and hanging out in, in groups of people that... Uh, in seedy bars yeah. and seedy movie theaters. Yeah, and, and that's what the, the, I guess, the defense, you could call it. That's what they were trying to portray Tom Hanks as being. He was reckless, not only in his personal life, but also his professional life. So clearly, it was a justifiable firing yeah. because look at what kind of a person he is. That's the kind of yeah. trial this is. It's all character. It is what the jury thinks of you mm -hmm. and what this jury thinks of the boss and all of his little goons around him. Yeah, because of course, this is not a criminal case. The firm is being sued and the the rules re regarding hey trying to prove you know guilt for lack of a better word is a lot easier to to prove in a jury trial like this because i mean clearly they didn't get like 100% of the jury convinced but you didn't need it no you had enough of them convinced and that's what's yeah. so interesting about how this courtroom drama which is almost half of the movie it's it's more than half the movie how it kind of unfolds because there's so many things that happen where it's like objection, objection, objection. And they say some extreme things to like prove each other's points. But what matters is the jury heard it. It doesn't matter if it's struck from the record. This mm -hmm. whole case relies on those 12 people who actually for 1983 for this movie, they're a really well diverse group of people in that jury. It's also Philadelphia. It is. But for 1993, think of a movie that would have predated this where they show the jury and mm -hmm. it's actually a representation yeah. of the people who live in this place. Yeah, we got white men and white ladies and black men and old men and old ladies. And younger people. Yeah. But all that matters is convincing them that there was wrong here. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of a snapshot in time as to what people's understanding of AIDS and just gay people in general was. There was a moment here where Denzel is talking about, you know, man, when when I was growing up and a, and a kid was queer, that means that they were just different and you didn't want to be around them. They didn't know how to fight. They didn't uh, want to play sports. They didn't want to do all the things that you're supposed to do when you're a boy. Well, you didn't have parents who really understood that because they were taught, you know, similar things, if not worse things. Well, and just having Denzel play this character yeah. is a really interesting layer to this story because, of course, Denzel is a black man right. in the United States of America. Like, if anybody should be sympathetic to prejudice and mm -hmm. bigotry and things like that, it would be a black man. 
and he is just as bad as the white guys as right. far as Tom Hanks's character being gay mm-hmm. goes. Yeah. He is and they very cover open about the fact that this is disgusting to him yeah. and he has a lot of problems with it. Yeah. He says, I'm prejudiced. Just judge me. It's fine. I don't care. I think they're disgusting. But that's a very common way that people think. It's just like, ugh, just that's the way I am and I think that's okay. Even by the end of the movie, he makes very small steps towards right. understanding and compassion. Yeah, because it's it's the baby steps, like you said. It is him immediately after meeting him for the first time. He goes to his own personal doctor and gets checked out because he's worried. Like he's like backing up from Tom Hanks after he says, I have AIDS. He literally steps farther back saying, oh, I'm sorry. Step I'm sorry, three, sorry three to hear steps that. backwards. Step as far away in your office as you can. And then the camera, you can see he's noticing all of the different things that Tom Hanks is touching and coming in contact with. So that later he can probably disinfect them or whatever he's going to do. Throw it all away if he yeah. has to. So he goes to his doctor and says, hey, uh, you know... I've heard that it's you got to get it through like bodily fluids and whatever else, but they keep on you know finding different things about it. What if, what if they're wrong? New what if they're science. wrong? I don't want to yeah. go home to my baby girl. Yeah, and find out I did this to her. Right. Yeah, it's it's very much a commentary on how people were thinking about this in this time frame. Mm-hmm. This is like the peak of the epidemic before people really across the United States understood it. Like yeah. this guy is a very good representation of the weird paranoia and the Mm -hmm. fear and the misunderstanding of the disease. I think they do a really good job at that. And not only through his character, but how all of the other people in this trial are, are kind of talking about it too. And I mean, even down to the fact that even the judge tries to get involved a little bit here saying, you know, in this courtroom, like justice is blind. Like we're not going to take anything into account here. It doesn't matter that he's, you know, a a gay man or has AIDS or anything like that. Justice is blind and that doesn't matter. But then Denzel pipes up and says, well, we don't live in this courtroom. I think that was a fantastic line to to say here. Well, and the director of this movie is Jonathan Demme, who directed... The Silence of the Lambs. And one of the things in that movie he does, he repeats in this movie, but it reads very, very differently to me here. The thing with characters looking straight at the camera. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that. In The Silence of the Lambs, he does it because, you know, you've got this psycho behind bars who Mm -hmm. is staring into your very core. In this movie, it by doing that, I know it's just a thing he has people do. Mm -hmm. It feels very much like, hello, viewer in america yeah you need to understand that the words coming out of this person's mouth are relevant to you and you should really be paying attention and then when you are looking at tom hanks like at the end of the movie yeah it's like this is what this is doing to people Mm -hmm. yes this is a movie but have some fucking compassion and understanding and you know take your pills like listen to what i'm saying take your medicine Learn from this movie. Yeah, and I think the the thing that really humanizes the entire thing is the very, very end of the movie where they bring back the whole home movie thing where you can see, presumably, that this is Tom Hanks as a child and he's just a kid. He's not a monster. He's not this deviant that was, you know, a a little devil child from, from the beginning. No, he's a kid like anybody else. He grows up. And he realizes what he is. 
He is a person, a human being first and foremost. Yeah. And you need to have compassion about gay people Mm -hmm. as well as people who have AIDS. Right. It is not their choice to be this way. It is not their choice to come down with this disease. And you can see on his face that this is debilitating. It is literally killing him. And you know, in 1993, you may not have known somebody with AIDS. You may not have known, I mean, a gay person or at least an out gay person. And you may not have actually seen what this disease actually does to people. Certainly not up close and personal. Like in the scene where they're talking about his lesions and they say, take off your shirt. Like it is a visceral experience for everyone in the room to see the extent of what this disease is doing to his body. Let alone just witnessing how weak he he gets by the end of the testimony. Just throughout the course of the trial, like from where he starts to the end of the trial, which I assume this went on for like weeks and weeks. I would say at least a month. Yeah, this is not a small trial. It's a major law firm. They're going to pull out all the stops. And they're going to bring all the witnesses that they possibly can. To come in and just say, no, this guy was bad at his job and we're going to prove it. We'll bring in so many people to prove it. Yeah. And like that, that... Just to go on on the side here, that first fucking witness that came in and said, well, yes, he represented us and I guess he won the the lawsuit and got us a whole bunch of money and (laughs) just Denzel throwing it back in his face. It's like, okay, okay. You think that this was a satisfactory win? You thought that your millions of satisfactory dollars (laughs) satisfied you. He was baloney, (laughs) a baloney sandwich. Well, and of course that is Roger Corman. Oh, that was the guy. Okay. So we were talking about this a few weeks ago when we were in the middle of our Never Scream It series. Roger Corman was the king of horror movies. Old horror movies. Like cheap ass horror movies that were getting cranked out left and right in the 1960s. He was apparently a mentor to Jonathan Demme, oh, the shit. director of the film. Okay, okay. So he got him in as a little cameo. A little favor. <laughs> so that that was who that was. All right. I saw his name in the credits, but I don't have a face to go with the name, and now I do. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I don't want to get too far off a tangent here. Um, I mean, the, the elephant of the room here is Tom Hanks. We're covering this movie because of him. We're not covering the movie because, hey, we want to do a courtroom, courtroom drama or an Oscar movie or anything like that. And this movie wasn't even nominated for Academy Award. He was, though. He was, the makeup was, and a couple of the songs were. So a a lot of technical things apart from him. So Tom Hanks, for his kind of first dramatic role, I think he just knocked it out of the park. There's something to be said about the fact that Tom Hanks is a major star. He was and he wasn't super, super famous Mm -hmm. in 1993. Like coming off of... I think Sleepless in Seattle was the thing that was right before this, which was a big hit. So let's go ahead and say he is this major star at this time. He is now the face of this movie and people want to go see it because he is in it. And now all of a sudden they're given actual information that should be relevant to their lives Mm -hmm. through him as the vessel. Right. As one of the things that we read was, you know, the movie is called Philadelphia. That gives zero context as to what the hell this movie is. Uh, Why would any casual moviegoer selectively go to see the gay man with AIDS goes to court story? On the surface. In 1993, 1994. That is a difficult sell. It's a difficult sell. But again, when they positioned this movie, it came out at the very tail end of 1993. And 
it was apparently a really big hit. Like, it made a whole lot of money, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. That's surprising to me because... I mean, you, you like to think that, okay, American audiences are a little bit more progressive and then the, the world in general is maybe maybe not. But no, this was a massive, massive hit. Which also surprises me because, like we keep saying, in 1993, when you smack this right into the middle of when this was really a problem in America, yeah, the fact that people would go, one, that anyone would make a movie about it, two, that people would go and see it in droves, suggests to me that a lot of it was Tom Hanks. Because it's like, oh, this looks interesting. And we've talked about how they made movie trailers back in the day. Every fucking movie in the 90s had a trailer with a voiceover. In a world. Or that it, guy. Or it was just like, meet Auntie. Andy's a lawyer. Like, right. that kind of weird... And he loses his job. Yeah, and they make it just not at all what the movie is. So there might have been some of that, but still conveying this is a drama. Tom Hanks, yeah. drama. Come and a lot of it. times when we do movies from, you know, decades and decades ago, we do sit down and watch a trailer, but in this case, we kind of remembered enough about it so we didn't really need to. I'm really curious to actually go and watch a trailer for this, just to see how they were trying to sell it. How do you sell this movie to an yeah. audience that, frankly, were they ready for it? Yeah. I don't know. I was eight. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember this time frame. But, but anyway, back to Tom Hanks yes, here. yes, for Tom Hanks, what I was surprised by was how he kind of disappears from the movie. Like, he's there, but once we get into court, mm -hmm. it becomes the Denzel feature. Yeah, it's a Denzel show from there. Leading up to that, he's got a, a lot of stuff going on. He is the main focus of it. They get to the courtroom, it switches, and then it sort of becomes this crossover as the two of them converge. Right. Like, we get these, like, split scenes of the these two lawyers. Like, we're introduced to them. They're on screen at the together. same... Together. Together. On, they're on screen at the same time, doing an argument in front of a judge, and then one of them wins, and they both leave. And then you get these split scenes of them kind of living their lives and, and living their their work lives like Denzel is a defense attorney that is the the stereotypical like ambulance chasing defense attorney have you been injured on the job and Personal you want injury lawyers yeah, yeah it's that kind of thing but he's also like a local celebrity he's the TV guy he, he, we have we, we have, have guys like that we have one in particular <laughs> who is a personal <laughs> injury attorney uh -huh. and if you live he was in, even he was even memefied a if, little bit if you live in the region of south dakota <laughs> where we live you know who we're talking about uh, google scott hoy oh him meme <laughs> you'll find it please stop please stop <laughs> anyway that's a little local flavor for you but that's denzel uh and then Tom Hanks's character is more, hey, he's the junior-slash-senior junior attorney in this big law firm, but he's not a partner yet. He is given this giant, giant case, which is, I find fascinating, is a um, copyright infringement case. It is between two different software companies. and <laughs> Again, 1993. Yeah, it's a big deal. Microsoft was, in, was very much in court all the time, and... 
this is of course a fake thing but there's like a spreadsheet program that is being sued by another spreadsheet program <laughs> for copyright infringement so you, you can't really do too much with a spreadsheet program but anyway but in 1993 you probably could make an argument for infringement because there's really like only to the two programs that exist well and in 1993 there are no laws about intellectual property like that the only like copyright laws are about books and music and other kinds of like art not about software there none of that existed yet not yet it wasn't until i think the the digital millennium copyright act in the year 2000 where they actually put it down on paper what the laws are in regards to like intellectual property in, in, a, in a digital form but yeah they give him this case and he is this young hotshot attorney who gets an opportunity to basically make his case for why he thinks the little guy should win. Yeah, and I think they don't really say it here, but this is an opportunity for him to possibly eventually become a partner. I've seen enough lawyer movies to know that this is where this is going. They do a really good job demonstrating the difference between how he is treated at the beginning of the movie oh, to yeah. once he gets fired. Like, they really establish very quickly he is well-liked, he is a hard worker. Yeah, he works hard, he works at all hours. The bosses fucking love this guy. They're, yep. like, shaking his hand and hugging him and sharing cigars and laughing and drinks and ha-ha, we're just the best. We're good at lawyering and you're gonna be good at lawyering, too. We make so much money. You're like a son to me. Yeah. That kind of an attitude yeah and then out of nowhere like we see all the dominoes mm -hmm. he's working hard on the case he's got his little brief he's in the office he leaves it on his desk as he, he says he kind of pats it with his hand delicately paper clipping <laughs> things together yeah so we the audience know he did not fuck this up there was no fuckery yeah <laughs> and then the next day there is chaos it is missing nobody knows why the original files are gone right and like he left all of this stuff for the rest of the attorneys there and all the paralegals and everything else and he's been sick he's been working from home he said he called in sick four days in a row and then he has an incident he has to go to the hospital and of course, this is the day that everything has to be, you know, filed. The deadline. It's the deadline. And guess what? Everything is gone. So what does he do? He leaves the fucking hospital to try to find everything. And I honestly thought there was going to be a scene of them uh, where, where he comes back to the office and they they notice how how bad he looks. And I thought, okay, maybe this is going to be the thing that triggers them to fire him because they they realize, oh, he's got AIDS and he needs to be, be out of here. Right, but they're good, again, in the editing of this mm -hmm. where they don't give you so much. You don't need it. You don't need to know the chaos that unfolds at the office, mm -hmm. like them running around trying to find this file and panicking and a guy waving it in the air yelling, <laughs> it was over here instead. No, instead we got Bradley Whifford just on the floor by himself. Panicking. <laughs> in like two scenes. Again, a very young Bradley Whitford. Yeah. That's always so wild to me when he shows up we in love these Bradley early Whitford. 90s things. But yeah, you don't need any of that because they managed to just cut from he's in the hospital to I'll be in the office. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is he has been fired a month ago. Right. And we slowly get information as to why. And we still never truly get a great resolution as to how they knew. 
No, they it's don't. It's all kind of conjecture about, okay, well, that person knew someone who knew the signs that they could have said something. Right. Like, I would say when they're doing the walk after he gets served the paperwork in the box seats, they're walking down this corridor and the old guy says, well, we need to start digging dirt up on him when we need to try to discredit him and all this other shit because that's what lawyers are going to do. The evil old white men uh-huh. scene. Uh-huh. And, but one of the guys... He said he kind of knew. He had a suspicion. But he also then on the stand says he never told anybody. No. So how did they know? I don't know. That's, it's left open to some interpretation for actually why they fired him. Because we know why. Because the the old man says, well, he brought that into our office. And yeah, brought it into our bathrooms and shit like that. Talking about um, interpretations. The guy who says, I kind of knew about it. I figured he had some kind of connection to that world. Either he was gay or he knows people who have AIDS and he knows the telltale signs of somebody with that condition. Well, of the partners, he's the only one that isn't a total piece of garbage. Yeah. He actually has a little compassion in that scene and says, well, you know, why don't we just settle with him? Right. Why don't we just do that? Right. And, you know, he's a human being and he's not a bad guy. And what the fuck, everybody? Yeah, I know what you did. I know you guys just got rid of him because of X, Y, Z. So I'm glad he's there. I'm glad that character is there to show that there are some semblances of humanity amongst this group of people. (laughs) But yeah, we don't exactly know why he got fired. We just kind of cut from scene to scene progressing through the story because this takes place over, I assume, about... A year and a half? About a year, because in the beginning, Denzel is like out somewhere and it's Christmas time. And then by the end of the movie, it's fall again. Right. And there was like his sister was pregnant, Tom Hanks' sister. Yeah. And then she's got the baby by the the end. So there's a lot of things marking the progression of time. I would say it's about a year. But it's about a year. And from the beginning to the end of the movie, Andy goes from. Normal, healthy, full head of hair. Yeah, relatively healthy. He's yeah. got. He's starting to get some he's lesions. Starting. You can see some of the stuff try, uh, starting to creep up. But then by the end, it just completely fucks him. And you were right. He lost 30 pounds for this role. Yeah, yeah. He, I don't know if he actually shaved his head or that's just really good makeup. I genuinely don't know because he grew out his hair for Castaway. It wouldn't surprise me if he shaved it all off for this movie. Well, I did also read that they shot this mainly in sequence. So maybe maybe the very, very end when he's in in the hospital bed, that that's just a skull cap. But he does buzz his hair for sure. But again, I'm not sure that that is. Because this movie got nominated for makeup. It's entirely possible that the makeup and hairstyling people were just really good. I don't know. But it it looked real enough for for me anyway. So yeah, he's doing this full physical commitment, which up to this point... People would not have seen from Tom Hanks. Sure. Losing 30 pounds. He is spending how long in the makeup chair? And uh, apparently the, the director also said to Denzel, hey, you should actually gain some weight. So to kind of fuck with Tom Hanks, Denzel would uh, eat chocolate bars on set and right in front of him. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a power move. And it would also add to this dynamic of the relationship where they don't exactly see eye to eye. These two people. No. But yeah, Tom Hanks 
is doing some really Tom Hanks things. Like, he's got the same charm at the beginning of the movie. Totally. He's kind of, like, trying to get the paralegal to go on a date with him. Like, he's sort of flirting with her. That's how I read that. Where he's like, hey, I got this restaurant. We gotta, gotta go over some briefs. And... He's saying, like, some kind of flirtatious things to her. And I assume it's because he's trying to play off the fact that, you know, if you think I'm flirting with you, you'll think I'm straight and you won't ask questions about my personal life. I am reminded of a little movie called V for Vendetta, Betsy, where in this dystopian world, there is a major, major TV star who always asks out these young, attractive women and takes them out on a good night just to keep up appearances, even though he is a gay man. He is expected to, so he does. He is expected to entertain young, attractive ladies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's doing seen doing that at the beginning of the movie, so the people yep. don't really ask questions about it. Yep. And, I mean, we get that scene of them in the... Uh, the sauna and all the old, the good old boys are making like gay jokes and like, oh, my old battle axe of a wife joke. You know, that old thing. That shtick. Yeah. <laughs> the old white men kind of jokes that right. are so funny. But yeah, so you see him being like flirtatious and energetic and really like cheeky. The first scene, he's like, this. What, what's the word he uses? innocuous <laughs> using using the big lawyery words that i would use when he, you don't need to but per the dictionary definition he's right. like the dictionary says this is a definition. <laughs> so there's elements of the tom hanks that we are used to seeing at the beginning and it's only as the movie unfolds that we get these like really dark emotional sad moments and there's like the sequence the one that stood out to me was when he is trying to get his intravenous treatment and Miguel is trying to get the the thing to get going yep. and it's not working. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know what? Skip for the one night, it's my arm, it's my treatment. Just skip it for tonight. And Miguel kind of is like, no, you know, I'm going to go and sulk in a corner a little bit because you're, you want to be a big baby? Fine, I'm going to go over here for a little while. Sure. And he kind of starts... Andy makes a joke. He's like, well, maybe I'll sit here and think about my memorial service. Right. And Miguel has a moment of real seriousness where he's like, well, maybe, maybe you, you should. should. And there is just this flash where all of a sudden it stops being a joke. And that moment of reality sinks in for just a minute. Right. For just a hair. And you see it wash over him. And then he says, no, fuck it. Nope, nope, nope. And he smooshes it back down right. and says, let's throw a big costume Actually, party. Actually, let's fucking party. Yeah. So there's this little wave in scenes like that where he goes from one high to yeah. a low to a high again. But at the same time, his personality type is kind of like mine where he's the responsible one and he needs to cover all of his bases. So yes, he is going to plan his memorial and plan his funeral and plan, you know, getting a lawyer for his partner to take care of all the charity that he wants to give to. But he hasn't gotten there yet. It takes him literally from that moment to the end of that night. Yes. Because... In the morning, he's not thinking of it, but by later, the same day, he goes, hey, here's some things that I need to get taken care of. Right. So could you help me out with those? And then they never do go over the questions. He instead starts going on this journey through opera. Yeah, and this scene, man, if there is any kind of like art in the world, in the, in the world of film, 
this is it right here. Because it is a man who is going through something that I wouldn't, I, I don't think I will ever experience in my life. He knows he's going to die. And he knows he's going to die very soon. And he is trying to enjoy something that he has probably enjoyed his entire life, but he's trying to enjoy it more. And as, as he's trying to bring it into himself as much as he possibly can. And you see Denzel kind of off, in the, off to the side, just witnessing this. And I don't think that he understands what he is witnessing here. Because I barely do. I'm glad that you were kind of interpreting it that way because I was trying to figure out what am I supposed to take from this scene because this is the most artistic scene in this movie. Yes. Like all of a sudden, everything stops being reality and the room is flooded with completely different kinds of light yeah. and red light and shadow and the flames yeah. in the background from the fire right. get really, really big. And it has no sense to the rest of the context of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like this is a moment of absolute fantasy in a movie of absolute realism. Right. All of, like you said, the, the, all of the light kind of drains out of the room and then there's just these flashes of color Pulses. on and off and like Denzel is out there. You can see all the lights happening to him as well. It's not just Tom Hanks. But then when it's done, everything kind of fades back up and we're back in reality. And he's just standing there in this sterile room hooked up to his IV. And then we just move on. Yeah. The way that Denzel reacts, like he just kind of goes, okay, it's fine. I can leave well, now. Well, all right then. Okay. How do you interpret this whole thing with Denzel? Because I feel like before he gets up and starts listening to, to the opera and dancing around, that Tom Hanks is really trying to be friendly. He's trying to be his, his friend. And he doesn't know any other way to do this because... These two guys are never going to be friends outside of work, you know, even if it wasn't the situation of him having AIDS and being gay or anything like that. They're never going to be friends. It is unlikely they are going to be chummy together. Exactly. And I think that this is his way of trying to impart something inside of him so that Denzel can maybe understand him more in the, in the only way he knows how. Right. It's a very dramatic moment for him personally. Yeah. And Denzel is just like, wow. Like, not bad wow, just I have to unpack this on my own. I think that's what it is. Because not only is he having it in the room there, he also leaves, he shuts the door, and then he almost goes back. Because for more, Tom, Tom Hanks turns the music on again, and he starts doing whatever he's doing behind the, the door. And, like, what is he thinking there? Is he, is he thinking that he wants to go back in and experience more of this magic? Or... Is he going to go back in there and say, and actually talk to him and, and be a friend? I think he doesn't know and that scares him and that's why he I turns that, around to leave. I think you're right. Because he is just about to do it and he's like, no, no, I got to no, get out of here. This is too much for me. I, I cannot do this. Because we've established that he is like a man's man and this is a weird world and I don't understand it. And, right. you know, now he's kind of approaching the line of understanding and he backs away. Yeah. So this is like earlier in the movie, he did it because he was afraid of him. Now he is intrigued. Right. And he is also afraid of his own curiosity. Because when he's, he, when Tom Hanks asks him, what do you think about opera? You know, what do you say to this, something like that? This guy does not know about opera. No, no. <laughs> but then he sees this, he experiences this along with him just as, as an observer and he didn't hate it. 
So I don't, a lot of that stuff is, is very up to interpretation here, but I think that scene was one of the best scenes in the movie. I mean, I don't normally like sequences in movies that are not explained. And in this one, I feel like it's best to not have that because of this, you know, nebulous thing that Tom Hanks is going through and you can't understand it yeah, because you're not him. There's so many moments in this movie where you are meant to, like, we're looking you in the eye and we're explaining this to you. Like, he's touching things and the camera is following. And this guy, in the beginning when he gets that case, there's this weird zoom in on Jason Robards laughing. And it's like, like it's almost like he's holding out his arms to embrace him and it's like cinematic as it's coming closer and there's shots of everybody laughing around the room and all of this is very old hollywood fantastical dreamlike of this is how great his life is look at how wonderful and then you've got that scene where it's all fantasy but it's magic as we're kind of tapping into his inner psyche And yeah, it doesn't really make sense, but also it makes complete sense when you can hang up the reality of it for just a second Mm -hmm. and just accept. And try to enjoy your life because up to this point, up to this point, it's like nine months straight of just nose to the grindstone and like researching this stuff all by himself at the beginning. Then he finally gets another lawyer guy to, to try to help him out with it and it's been nothing but that. And now he can finally see the end. He is the final witness at his own thing. And he doesn't want to spend the entire night, you know, practicing and hearing the questions and whatever the fuck else. He's going to do however he's going to do at the trial. And there's no point in even practicing. Well, and that's a good way of saying it. Like, I just suddenly had a flashback to watching Mad Max Fury Road. A weird... <laughs> that is a, a weird transition. Jump, a weird jump. But all those guys in there keep yelling, witness me. Witness me. When they're about to die. Yeah. They say, look at me. Acknowledge my existence and be with me. Be a part of this. This is kind of that version of that moment for him is witness me because this is again the night that he has established maybe I am gonna die and I need to make some plans and I don't have very long left on this world he even says I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end of this trial there's a very real possibility yeah yeah so there are some really beautiful things that Tom Hanks is doing and I get it I understand why when Oscars came calling, they said, Tom Hanks, here you go. Sure. And he beat out some uh, some heavy hitters. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis was one of them that he beat out. Ouch. Um, Anthony Hopkins is another and a couple other guys I didn't recognize. I I couldn't I've never seen any of the other movies that uh, were nominated in that category for these actors. But yeah, I'm totally there with you. Um, Denzel, however, was not nominated for this. I'm kind of okay with that because he's very, very good in this, but he is doing something I've seen him do before. He's doing Denzel. (laughs) He is playing Denzel. And I just kept remarking, he has mastered the art of not blinking. That man doesn't blink. And I know these (laughs) actors are trained to not do that. But he in particular was just staring into my soul this whole movie. Well, it doesn't help that you have all of these extreme close-ups and him looking directly into the camera. And again, we mentioned that that's his, that's the director's style of doing it. His trademark. Yeah. 
and I I noticed that from the first time that they did it. It's like, why is this actor looking directly into the camera at me? Listen, the director also made the choice to have the daughter, Denzel's daughter, is named Clarice. Oh, you know, shit. Clarice. In 1993, that would have been really distracting. It's still distracting now, but only because I was like, I'm really hoping what he said was Larice, but then, no, it's Clarice. It's like, why? Okay. Okay. That was not necessary. I wish you hadn't done that. I get why you did. I just choose to ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But let's talk about some of the other actors in this movie, because we haven't really talked about the fact that Antonio Banderas is in this movie. Yeah. He is 33 and absolutely at like peak young, handsome Antonio Banderas. And people didn't really know who he was in 93. He had done Desperado, I think, a year before this. I think it was like 92. Yeah, yeah. So he was still breaking in America. He had not done, like, major leading roles. And you were reading that this role was supposed to go to someone else. Yeah. But they turned down the role to do a different movie. Trent, please elaborate on what that story is a little movie that we covered earlier on this year mr john leguizamo chose to play luigi in super mario brothers john leguizamo could have played opposite tom hanks in an oscar-winning role Mm -hmm. and he chose not to to play luigi in that version of Super Mario. That's a choice. It was a choice. That he has to live with. (laughs) (laughs) So while I would have appreciated him being in this, I'm really glad it's Antonio Banderas because he is really like on his A game. Like I am the guy who is taking care of everything i'm gonna make sure you take your medicine and that you eat right and that you do this and what's going on and i'm gonna ask all the right questions and you're gonna get better god damn it one thing that i want to say here about the movie in general and not, not not just him or anybody else for 1993 you could have gone way too far in the gayness and i think you know what i mean when i say that he could have been this very flamboyant. He could have been Hank Azaria in the birdcage. Yeah, they could have gone very far. And frankly, this is like gay light in this movie. Very because much so. they keep saying they're gay, but there is very little affection between them. Like, there's no kissing. They have one dance together. Yeah, they do dance together. They kiss at the hospital, but it's very minor. It's not like full mouth, no. like we're making out in also, front of people. No. It, also, it is facing away from the, the camera. Yeah, they kind of made a decision. We are already challenging our viewing audience. Let's not challenge them quite that far. Might, might have been a bridge too far. And I get why they're not doing it. Apparently, there was a lot of like... Um, gay rights groups who were looking at looking at this movie saying you know, two different things. One, finally, finally Hollywood is doing a story about our community and the struggles that we're going through. And two, they also said the opposite saying, you know, you didn't really do that good a job of representing us because you know, saying some stuff about like Philadelphia is not very friendly to our community or anything like that. And you know, the depictions of these people are just not that accurate and blah, blah, blah. So you could have gone farther you have gone in the farther, eyes of that community. But because it is a mainstream movie, I, they understood why they made the decisions that they made. Right. 
But as far as like uh, uh, people being tolerant in this movie, uh, all of the women, by the way, all of the women in this movie are pretty good as far as, you know, being the tolerant people. You're not wrong. I do have a question about one, though. Okay. So the one that makes me go, okay, which way does she stand on this issue mm-hmm. is Mary Steenburgen. So she is the opposing counsel. Yep. She is the one defending his former employers. And she is also great in this movie. She is. Because she is like this squeaky clean female lawyer, the absolute perfect representation. Does to everything be, with a smile. Yes, to be the opposing counsel here. She is going to get this jury on her side because she doesn't raise her voice. She's got almost like a mom teacher energy. She's just going to soothe you into submission. And there are moments in the trial where it feels like she doesn't want to go where the mm-hmm. defense has to go. Yep. And there is a part where she holds up the mirror and says, do you see the lesions? Mm -hmm. She sits back down and she leans over to her co-counsel and says, I hate this case. Is she saying that because she's disgusted by him and what AIDS is and who he is and his lifestyle? Or is it because she is disgusted with herself? She is disgusted with the fact that this defense has to go this far in order to get an acquittal. That's what I think it is. You think so? Yeah, I do. Because, again, this is one of those moments that I feel like is maybe open to interpretation of, Mm -hmm. is she on the side of the bad guys, quote unquote? And maybe that's just me as the viewer knowing I want Tom Hanks to win. I don't want her to win. She's on the bad guys team. Mm -hmm. Or is it that, you know, she is... A lawyer doing her job. She is a lawyer doing her job. And you're right. She's going to an extreme to prove a point, and she feels gross about it. And we don't see the other side of the other two lawyers talking with each other outside of the case. All we ever see is them in the courtroom doing their job, trying to get their clients off. That's their job. Fair enough. But I did have a question about her. Uh, But you're right otherwise. I think the rest of the women, Mm -hmm. like the other woman who they bring in to testify who also has AIDS, like she keeps looking at him and they never exchange words, but they're looking at each other. It's that sympathy. like In the eyes, I I get you, I know exactly what you're going through. And and she even pipes up at the very, very end. She's not prompted for this answer, but she says, you know, my situation is very different than his or how he got it, but there is no fault here. This disease doesn't care who the fuck you are. Right. I'm going to say it even if you didn't ask me. Yeah, it affects us all the same way. Like, I'm up here and I look healthy. He does not look healthy. We have the same thing. It doesn't, it's not because he's a gay man. It's not because I'm a straight woman or anything like that. It's just, if it affects people different ways. And this is, again, looking at the audience saying, Hey, yeah. listen up. This is important. And not just the audience, you know, watching the movie, but it's also the audience of the jury. Mm-hmm. So the the other women being, of course, mostly his family members. Yeah, his family is his super family, su- supportive. In 1993, to be this supportive of not only is he gay, not only does he have a partner who lives with him and has lived with him for many years? Yeah. They all know him and love him, and they treat him like a member of the family. They only care about him 
doing what's right for him. So right. when he's about to go in into this trial, he says to them all, you know, there's going to be publicity and my name's going to be out there and some mean things are going to be said. And, and I people want, are going to look into you guys. And they're going to ask you questions and I want you to be okay with it. And his mom and dad, who are of a completely different generation, who you would think are the most likely to be get out of my house and never talk to me again. They say, whatever you want to do, we love you and we're proud of you. We're so proud of you, son. Yeah. And he's just like, fuck me, throw the table, <laughs> go and cry underneath it. Like. Yeah, like I, I really appreciated how, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he goes in and does some blood work because he knows he's got it. Yeah, from it, this is not a mystery. Minute one, we know that he knows he has it. Yeah, he goes into a room of men who are going through the same thing, getting treatments and getting blood work done. He calls his mom afterwards and says, yeah, they say my T-cells are good. They know everything is fine and blah, blah, blah. What are you but, doing? But but they linger on the mom enough so that you can see the concern on her face. And they do it like two or three times in this movie. And I think that that's the, the, the couple of scenes there that really got to me. Yeah. Was the mom just with the, the look of concern. She doesn't give a shit what he has or why he has it. She yeah. just is concerned that her son is dying. She wants her son to be better. To live. To live, yeah. Yeah. And it's Joanne Woodward. Do you know who that is? I don't. That is uh, another golden age of Hollywood actress from the 1950s and 60s who, for like 50 years, was married to Paul Newman. They are okay. one of the, like, the couples from that era of Hollywood. They got married and they stayed together forever until they until they <laughs> passed away. All right. It's a beautiful story. There's a whole documentary about the, that couple on HBO. And I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's amazing. All right. And there's a few other actors in here that, you know, are recognizable, but they're I mean, they're like one of his brothers I recognize, one of the jury members I recognized. His sister is Anne Dowd, yeah, who is sister. one of those really great character actresses who you and I really know much older. Like sure. you have to tack on about 15 years before we start recognizing her. But I saw her face and I was like, I know who that is. Mm -hmm. Who is that? I know who that is. I'm like, I know the, the judge from other stuff. There's a lot of really great character actors, like people with great faces. One of the guys who visited him in the hospital, I recognized him from something. The woman who does his makeup at the beginning, mm -hmm. I knew her. She's on... Uh, Grey's Anatomy. I just figured that out while I was talking. I was like, I know her face, but she's much younger. Okay. Uh, the other woman who was the paralegal, she's been in like the American president and some other stuff from like the late 90s. Stuff from the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So definitely people I have seen in a lot of other movies. Sure. Well, Betsy, I think um, uh, that's about all I really had. Uh, I might have one more thing here, but what, what else did you have? I kind of keep forgetting until I see this movie that Bruce Springsteen has an Oscar. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Academy Award winner, Bruce Springsteen. Best original song. How is this guy not a, not an EGOT by now? I mean, he's damn close, I assume. Because he's, I guess done, he, he's done Broadway. He has done Broadway. Yeah, he did a, a one-man show. or hmm. a, a, I think it was a one-man show. And he's definitely got Grammys. I don't know if he's got an Emmy, though. Yeah, maybe not. If he, an Emmy. if he is an EGOT, I'm very sorry. I'm not aware of this information, <laughs> which I'm going to Google once we finish recording. Indeed. Well, the other, um, I guess, one little thing I wanted to mention before we, uh, we stopped was uh, a lot more of the camera tricks because during the 
the scenes where Tom Hanks is up on the stand. He's getting more and more like disoriented where his vision is starting to blur and like the camera is, is like zooming in, but it's zooming in on the wrong things. Like he's staring at the, at the other attorney, but he's kind of like drifting off to one side and, and then the other side and it's tilting one way and then tilting the other way. And it's just, it's a very effective way to really depict how he's feeling at that at that moment. There's a lot of first-person camera work in this movie, yeah. which, again, is not super common for the 90s. I feel like in the 90s, that was a choice. If you were doing that, mm-hmm. it had to be a very, very specific reason. And in this movie, they do it a limited amount of time, but when they do it, it's really effective. Right. All right, well... Again, not because we really wanted this to be a downer episode, and I don't think it was, because I think this is a fantastic movie. But when you're talking about, you know, a very dramatic actor in a very dramatic movie, you kind of have to cover the, you know, the, the more serious ones sometimes. And sometimes we just, we can't have fun with a movie about AIDS. And you know, we're in his Oscars era. Yeah. The only other one he got was a year after this for Forrest Gump, which we've seen many we've times. We've seen many so we times. we can't do Forrest Gump, <laughs> yeah. so so very sorry. So many other 90s movies that we could have covered, but we've already seen them. And this one really spoke to us because, hey, he won an Oscar for it. When we did our Nicolas Cage thing, we, we watched his Oscar thing, and that was another really downer. We didn't get to do that for Keanu because he ain't got one. <laughs> Yet. 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 Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is where we're going to end this one, Betsy. If you, dear listener, would like to email us about Tom Hanks, about Philadelphia, the movie, or the city, email us at neverseenitpod at gmail.com. We received one such email from our super fan, Stephanie, about our last Tom Hanks movie, Splash. Stephanie says, This is a very fun movie. Tom Hanks is so charming. Yes, he is. That's why we're doing this. Uh, Hell yeah, John Candy. He is wonderful, so funny. Also, I love Eugene Levy. Yay for Schitt's Creek and American Pie? Question mark? Exclamation point? Did you forget he was in that? Is that the question mark? Or maybe she's putting a question mark on the movie itself and maybe it hasn't aged all that well. Oh, I guarantee that movie has not aged well. Oh no. Sean William Scott, his entire career is based off of that character and its problematicness. Which is a shame, because he's delightful. He is. We watched Goon not long ago. You should go and listen to that episode. Back to the email. Overall, this is a very fun rom-com, light and sweet, even with all the tits and ass. (laughs) My favorite rom-coms are full of tits and ass. Thank you very much. Obviously. We finished out our spooky month with Incantation and Under Wraps 2. Incantation was really pretty good, and Under Wraps 2 is a fun family movie. Again, I have no idea what any of these are. No. And speaking of family movies, Stephanie responded to my request for a review of Hocus Pocus 2. So here that is. You had asked my opinion of Hocus Pocus 2. It is okay. Not necessary at all. It doesn't really add anything, nor is it so good that you can forgive the eye-rolling aspects. I don't think that you'll hate it, but I definitely don't think that you will love it. Anyway, love you, superfan Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie, for that. Yeah, we know that we have a small interest in watching some of these it's it's the equivalent of direct to DVD, but now it's direct to Disney Plus sequels. Yeah. 
and like a part of me wants to watch it. We also, love Hocus Pocus. Also, a greater part of me is just like I just don't want to taint the memories. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to go. And hurt my feelings. Right. Are we going to have the incident where you see it much, much later in life and you realize, oh, actually, that movie is bad. That will never happen with the original because I watched it many (laughs) times later in my life. So have I. So have I. But the sequel, when you've got these women who are a full 30 years older. Yeah. Trying to play the same age, which they are not. With the same energy level. And yeah. It's it's kind of like that thing I always complain about when we watched The Irishman. Oh, sure. Where it's old guy moving around like an old guy, but his face is made up to look like a young guy. Yeah. And that's, Younger guy, anyway. That's my concern with a movie like Hocus Pocus, too. Agreed. Keeping in the same vein as Splash, uh, we got a listener who reached out to us on Twitter. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. Uh, Rachel reached out to us and gave us a little bit extra context about the questions that we had about the movie. Mainly, she was answering the question about, okay, the movie doesn't really explain like what these rules are, like she can be a human with human legs for six days on land, but there's no explanation for that. There's no context. How did we get here? How did she get on land with human legs? Apparently there were some like deleted scenes and there was going to be like the equivalent of Ursula, like a sea hag gives her the rules and like allows her to go on to land. But the way it was shot was apparently really scary, and it completely changed the tone of this comedy movie. Yeah, the test audiences hated it, basically. And Ron Howard went, well, that's a shame, and he cut it. And I don't really like when directors and other movie makers put their films in front of test audiences because your film should stand on its own without the influence of anybody. But I get it, you're making a studio picture, the studio wants to make money, and it's probably the studio who is mandating it, especially from a director that is unproven. So I get that. And sometimes it is for the best. Like, the changes the audience wants makes the movie better. Yes. It just depends. And frankly, I feel like in this case, that is what happened. Yeah, like, we're still left with some questions at the end of that movie, but it didn't detract from the overall picture. No, you just go along with the magic and the ride. But yeah, thanks again, Rachel, for the extra context there. If you would like to reach out to us and give us some extra context, maybe answer some questions that we're asking throughout the entire episode, reach out to us anywhere you want. We're on all the social media platforms. Email us, neverseenpod at gmail.com, and maybe we'll talk about it on the show. But that is going to be the end of this one. Before we go, we're going to do the thing we always do. Please go to your podcast app of choice. If it allows you to give us a rating, go ahead and give us five stars or whatever its 100% equivalent is. The maximum amount you are allowed to give. Exactly. Also, if you can, leave us a review. Tell us how great we are so that other people can say, hey, we're not just crazy people speaking into the void. Boost our egos. Indeed. And of course, Thanksgiving does not end with the 90s. No, no. We still have three more episodes coming out for the month of November. And the next one, Betsy, is going to be from, I don't even remember the year. Is it the year 2000, 2001? Somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. Betsy, we're going to watch... Castaway. I'm finally getting my way. Betsy has wanted me to see Castaway forever, and here we go. It is time! I'm excited. Yeah. So, look forward to that one coming out next Wednesday. 
Again, this is Thanksgiving. This has been Never Seen It. We will be back to you on Sunday with another regular edition of Never Seen It. But until then, my name is Trent. My name is Betsy. And we'll catch you then. Bye, everyone.